Hi, everybody. This is Jose Formoso. Thank you for listening to the El Progreso podcast. We're excited you're here. I just wanted to note that the following episode was recorded while we were still calling the show the Tequeria podcast, in case you are confused by some of the references inside. Other than that, there should be no content differences. Since we're here, I do want to ask you for a favor. Please follow El Progreso podcast and myself on the social network of your choice. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Pandora, and the other pod networks. It really helps us continue doing the show. Thank you, and see you at El Progreso. Hello and welcome to the Tequeria Podcast. In today's show, we talk about the upcoming U.S. election. With only days until the country chooses a new chief executive, Latinx people are wondering about the potential outcomes that might affect the community both in the short and long term. They include the possible end of affordable health care for millions of Latinx, a right already in peril due to the new ultra-conservative majority on the Supreme Court, worries about the economy and jobs, and yeah, even the fate of the planet, probably, with very different ideologies from candidates. In this mega two-hour pod, we will speak to seven people today. They include experts that have studied the Latinx vote for decades, regular tech workers volunteering for political campaigns, a reporter who's dug deep into questions around the gig industry and how it might affect the future of jobs, and the Latina U.S. representative who followed her friend Beto O'Rourke into Congress and is fighting to place Latinx issues center stage. Oh, and we'll have an awesome musical guest, Unlearn the World, who has some of the hottest buzz in the rap world and always tries to speak truth to power. Let's get started. Our first guest is Dean Lisa Garcia Bedoya the Vice Provost for Graduate Studies and the Dean of the Graduate Division at the University of California at Berkeley. She not only works with the school's Graduate Council of the Academic Senate on developing and enforcing policies for more than 100 graduate programs, many of which are regarded as the best in the world, but she's also an expert on the causes of political and economic inequalities, particularly in the subjects of ethnicity, race, gender, class, geography, and sexuality. So thank you so much for being on with us. Wanted to talk to you about the election. I was going through your history in learning about Latinx people and how they're voting, especially in the United States. Could you briefly provide us with a summary of your role in higher education and understanding the voting patterns of Latinos? So my training is in political science. And for the last, I guess, 20 years... I've been studying what it is that makes Latinx people engage or not in the political system. And so I've done that in a variety of ways. I've done in-depth qualitative interviews, asking people how they think about politics, what they think is important about politics. I've worked with community-based organizations who do community organizing on the ground, and I study their tactics and for whom they work and for whom they don't. And I've also done large-scale quantitative studies of Latinx voting patterns, both nationally and then within particular states. And what I've learned is that we are a very diverse population, that we vary in terms of nativity, generation, language use, 
education, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, ideology, and that geography is really important. It often maps onto national origin. I forgot to say national origin is an important line of diversity. More than 60% of Latinos in the United States are of Mexican origin, but that the community is becoming more and more diverse by national origin. And so Mexican-Americans tend to be concentrated in the Southwest, but there's a growing community in New York. There's a large community in Chicago. Cubans tend to be concentrated in Florida, but there's a decent community in LA and also in New Jersey. And that those contexts matter in terms of how people are brought into politics and then what their voting and engagement patterns look like. So what does that mean for 2020? What are you seeing as a trend that might affect this broad Latino coalition? So historically, Latino political engagement has been lower than that of whites and African-Americans. Latinos actually look a lot more like Asian-Americans in terms of their engagement. So the first layer is Latinx folks tend to not register at the same rates as other communities. And then if they're registered, then they tend to vote at similar rates, but that registration is really a hurdle. In places like California, that has really changed, both because of the mobilization that happened in the 1990s and then the move towards automatic voter registration in the state. So we've gotten rid of that hurdle for folks. The other issue is that Latinx voters are much less likely to be the target of mobilization efforts by campaigns. And so because Latinx voters tend to be younger and therefore maybe have less of a voter history, or they tend to, in, in many cases, only vote in presidentials, not in midterm elections, they end up with low what are called vote propensity scores. These are scores that the, the vote vending companies, voter list vending companies, provide for, for people. So let's say you're running a political campaign, you want to reach out to likely voters. Every voter is going to have a score of zero to 100 if you're using Catalyst as a vendor, as an example. And you're going to say, well, I only want the people who are 70 to 100, right? Because I don't want to spend money on somebody that's hard to turn out. Latinx voters are much more likely to be under 70. So they're much more likely to not be targeted by campaigns. And then you have the additional folks who are eligible to vote who are not registered, who then also, right, aren't being targeted. And then all the new voters who don't have a vote history and therefore aren't being targeted. And so... What my research has shown is that if you actually talk to Latinx voters and you talk to them about why the election matters and you ground that conversation in the things that they really care about, they will turn out to vote. The problem is political campaigns aren't talking to them. So what's new in 2020 is we have significant, still not sufficient, but large investments by community-based organizations to mobilize Latinx voters and to have those real authentic conversations about the things that those voters care about. And that's going to make the difference in terms of Latinx voter turnout in places like Arizona, Florida, Colorado, you know, all the battleground states. So who are the groups in the U.S. that are doing most of the outreach work to Latinx? According to experts, among the most impactful include Voto Latino, Mi Gente, and Lucha Arizona, as well as other more traditional advocacy organizations like Unidos U.S., formerly the National Council of La Raza. Voto Latino in particular has gotten a lot of attention for supercharging the social media power of its celebrity supporters like actresses America Ferrara and Rosario Dawson, the latter of whom actually founded the nonprofit more than 15 years ago with Phil Colon, a top ad executive. 
Just two weeks ago, Voto Latino announced they'd registered more than 558,000 voters across the country for this election alone, more than half in Texas, and had also raised more than $35 million for mobilization programs in the spaces that Dean Garcia Bedoya talks about, poor, underserved, and monolingual Spanish hubs. Let's talk about the main issues that are important for Latinx voters in 2020. What do you see from your research that might be the most important part of making a decision? Well, historically, jobs, healthcare, and education historically have almost always been the top three issues. Immigration is an important issue. Um, the way I like to talk about it is, or I think a good way to think about it, it's a gateway issue, right? What your attitude towards immigration as an elected official t tells me is whether you think I and my family should be in this country. It's not that that's my decision about voting. It's just telling me whether or not you actually think I belong here. And so in general, in surveys, that's why immigration doesn't tend to be your top voting issue, but it's still important from, from that gateway question of, do you have respect for and believe that Latinx voters matter and should be part of the U.S. political system? There's a lot of data out there that says up to 30% of people are going to vote for Trump for the presidency who has not shown or said in any way that he supports a lot of immigration. You know, what's the main thing that those communities that are choosing to continue to vote for the president, what are they thinking going into 2020? Right. So I think the first thing that's really important to say is it's not reasonable to expect that any community be monolithic in terms of their voting patterns. African-Americans vote very heavily Democratic but the, because they have a very particular history in the United States. And so the Latinx community has a different history. You have to remember that some Latin American migrants, for example, Cuban refugees, my family is Cuban refugees, many Cuban refugees, some came because they were supporters of the left and some came because they were supporters of the right. And so that conservatism remained even as they got integrated into the United States. Similarly, many Nicaraguan immigrants, right, are people who supported the right-wing regimes or Central American immigrants who supported right-wing regimes. There's also Central American immigrants that supported left-wing regimes, but we are not ideologically monolithic is number one. I think the other thing, though, that's important is that Latinx voters don't necessarily represent the community. They tend to be older than the community by, by and large, right? They tend to be of higher socioeconomic status, and so they're vote propensity or their vote choice is going to be a little bit different than the community writ large or even all eligible Latinx voters. And so I think actually, if we think about what happened in 2016, 52% of eligible Latino voters did not vote. And so they're the ones who decided the election, right? And we know that the, that 52% tends to be younger, poorer, Right. And so they're going to have a different set of voting patterns. The people who are checking out of the system because of the vitriol and the rhetoric and all the negative framings of Latinx community members that have come out of the Trump administration, that makes some people excited to vote. And it makes an even larger number of people kind of pull back from the system and focus on the things that they control, which is their family their job, their community. And so that 30%, you know, is, is, is 
a reflection of the com complexity of the Latinx experience in the United States. The other piece that I think is really important to point out is there's a significant gender gap in terms of support for Trump among Latinx voters. This gender gap holds for all ethno-racial groups in the United States. And so we need to remember that Trump's appeal, if you look at the analyses that came out of 2016, was to racially resentful whites who also held what people call modern sexist beliefs. So a, a new version of, of what people call toxic masculinity. And it's important for us to realize that that toxic masculinity does appeal to some men of color and that that's another explanation for the support that he has among community members. The non-monolithic nature of the Latino political electorate is anew. It goes back generations, and all of us know a Tesla or a Humpty driving uncle who will be voting for Trump. According to the Pew Research Center, up to 70% of Latinx people vote for Democrats consistently. But it is possible that even with a massive negative stereotyping and racism employed by this administration, Trump may gain more Latino votes this year. Like the dean says, there are a lot of reasons why that's the case. But one that still doesn't get as much attention is the anti-black and anti-dark skin aspect of the Latin culture and how it relates to political choices. You certainly won't find it much in American national Spanish-speaking news networks where near every host is a leggy, white-skinned blonde. But work about and surrounding this topic is growing. Researchers like Jasmine M. Haywood from Indiana State University focus on the anti-black racism within the Latino community, which often is an ingrained ideology in countries that accept racism and may affect voting. And of course, this also often neighbors anti-dark brown racism. In 2012, UCLA Department of Sociology professors Vilma Ortiz and Edward Tellis published a study in the Race and Social Problems peer-reviewed academic journal that used an intergenerational data set ranging 35 years that found darker Mexican-Americans that appear more stereotypically Mexican report more experiences of discrimination and that they report more discrimination than lighter men overall. I was doing some research into your previous work, and I found a couple of papers that were really interesting, in particular about the association in the Latino community due to Spanish language disparities. Can you explain that work, whether it's still affecting Latin people, including in this election? So that was from my, my first book, Fluid Borders, and this was based on in-depth interviews that I did uh, with Latinos that were living in, at that time, East L.A., and Montebello. East Los Angeles, for people who don't know, is a working class neighborhood in Southern California. Montebello is a middle class, but still majority Latino neighborhood. And I was comparing their political attitudes in response to the organizing around Proposition 187. And what I found is, and, and what I argued, is that because voting is, is raced, gendered, and classed in the United States, in, in, in other words, voters have tended to be propertied white men, right? If you look at American history, that has been the model of, of who gets to be involved in politics, that if you are a person of color in the United States, you have to find some way psychologically to sort of see yourself in that voter, right? And so there, there's, there's a psychological process that has to happen that is not the case if you're in the majority group. And what I found among my Montebello respondents that within the context of the very significant anti-immigrant rhetoric that was happening around Proposition 187, which is very similar to what's happening nationally today, 
that they didn't have any immigrants that they interacted with on a regular basis. These were U.S. born, often third, fourth, fifth generation, English dominant, people of Mexican origin. And so they knew that these negative frames were being applied to them, even though they weren't actually immigrants. But they didn't have any positive frame to attach it to, right? So they didn't know people necessarily to contradict the narratives that they were hearing in the broader society. And so what ended up happening psychologically is they distanced themselves. They were, they tried to sort of say that, yes, they were Mexican, but their version of Mexican didn't include immigrants or didn't include those folks. And so I called that, you know, a, a process of cognitive dissociation, but I think it's a product of a feeling of powerlessness and social stigma within the society and an attempt to find a positive identity for yourself. I think that's what human beings naturally want. We want to feel good about who we are. And that by distancing themselves from the part of their community that they thought was the most stigmatized, that was their way of feeling better about their Mexicanness, to put it that way. I wanted to talk about some of the other issues that you're thinking about in terms of either or. What could happen to Latinos in this country if Biden and Harris get into power as opposed to what happens if we have a continuation of the Trump administration. What are the main things that you are either excited about or potentially worried about when it comes to the outcome of this election? I was surprised last night in the debate to hear Biden so emphatically say that he was going to provide a path to citizenship for all unauthorized immigrants in the United States. That is huge. So, and again, we have to remember that those folks are connected to other U.S. citizens. So the positive impact would be massive from a human standpoint. On the other side, if the Trump administration were to continue, if we just think about, you know, I've, I just keep thinking about the 545 children who were taken from their parents. That is an incredible human tragedy that will only happen again if the administration wins because they have no intention of changing that policy. And I didn't see any recognition on the president's part last night in the debate that there was anything wrong with that policy in the first place. So I think there's some real human costs at stake. The last thing I would say is we need to remember that at the time of the passage of ACA or the Obamacare, whatever you want to call that bill, Latinos were the least likely to be insured in the United States. We also right now are the most likely to be essential workers, and we are getting COVID at much higher rates than we should. You're the Dean of Graduate Studies at UC Berkeley, which is my alma mater. I'd love to know what you're hearing about this year from Latinos and Latinas and Latinx people that are there for persons of color attending graduate studies. How are they feeling this year? Are they struggling with their work? We know that it's already a great personal challenge? Are they staying mentally healthy? Do they think that they have a good future ahead of them amidst the fog of this political and cultural war that we're all a part of? How are the, how's everybody feeling? It has been a really difficult time for our students. Uh, our chancellor likes to say we're all in the same storm, but not on the same boat. And what has been made very clear is that the inequities that already existed have just been blown up by COVID. So our students are struggling with mental health issues. They're much more likely to have family members that are sick. Many of them are having to go home and take care of family members or provide financial support to family members. 
those that are now having to go to class from home are often having to take care of younger siblings because their parents are essential workers and they're not at home and their siblings are trying to do remote education. And the college student or the graduate student is seen as the one that can help. And so they have that additional pressure on top of their own studies. And they have the worry that comes from having a lot more uncertainty about the job market once they leave, right? So not only are they having more financial challenges, but they're also having to then think about the uncertainty. You know, they invested in going to school. Many of them took out loans. They're the first in their family to go to college. Their families have these tremendous expectations, right, of what they're going to do once they finish. And they may not get to realize those dreams. And so that pressure um, in our last poll, half of our undergraduate students and 40% of our graduate students are experiencing um, severe anxiety, right? And, and also symptoms of depression. So the mental health costs of this are huge. And for our students of color, they're even, even greater. There's a, a gap in terms of students of color being much more stressed because they have all of these multiple pressures on them that they're trying to manage and they're really young and having to do what most of us have never had to do even as, as adults. This is not how I thought I would end college. My school, where I'm from, has really been impacted by the virus. We expected something to happen soon, but we didn't know it would be this um, drastic so quickly. When uh, my chancellor first sent out an email telling us that QCSB is going remote, I was um, shocked. Students who were off campus during spring break were essentially told to not come back to campus. Um, and they were ordered to either stay or go back to their permanent address. Last week was my last time in the facilities. School is closed, students were instructed to evacuate and join their families, but I cannot because I'm an international student and I cannot leave because of travel bans. As an international student, I do not have a place to stay here and currently I'm in a pretty sticky situation. My visa was rejected this week um, so I literally do not have a place to go back right now. And my only choice uh, is to stay here in America and hopefully Georgetown. I have chosen to stay in Santa Cruz. This is mainly because um, if I am exposed to the virus and I'm asymptomatic right now, um, I don't want to go back to my parents' house and accidentally expose my family. What else do you think is important for people to know as they either go to the polls or the voting centers when it comes to their community? So I guess the first thing I would say is that because I study voting and I give a lot of talks, people often say, well, why do you, why do you study voting? Voting doesn't matter. And my answer is, if voting didn't matter, there would not have been so much energy spent over the course of American history trying to keep people from being able to do it. So voter suppression means that voting actually matters. The second thing I would say is that we tend to think about voting as an individual level act. And when people don't do it, it's because there's some pathology, right? So if we think about the sleeping giant, where we, we somehow, the Latinx community, there's something wrong with us because we're just asleep and not paying attention. And I would argue that Latinos are actually in the, the canary in the coal mine of American democracy. And if you have 52% of eligible people sitting out, that reflects a structural problem and that we have to proactively think about how to integrate those U.S. citizens into the political system so that they can feel comfortable with and capable of exercising their franchise. And so 
the fact that so many of us don't vote speaks to problems with how we run campaigns and how we run our institutions rather than something that's fundamentally wrong with us. Next up is Veronica Escobar, the congresswoman from Texas's 16th district, representing El Paso since 2019. Representative Escobar has been a county commissioner and a judge, and before getting into politics, taught English and Chicano literature at a local community college and the University of Texas at El Paso. In the last two years, she has been a leading voice against family separation policies of the Trump administration, especially with migrant detention centers nearby. And when 23 people were killed and 23 more were injured during a hate-inspired terrorist attack in August 2019 in the city, Escobar was in front, looking for solutions through gun rights legislation. Latinos get to decide who is the president of the United States. And I would love to know how you're feeling today about the economic, social, and civic prospects of Latinos, of Latinx people as we move into the election? How, how's it looking from your end? You know, I think first and foremost, there's just not been enough attention paid to the Latino vote and to the contributions of Latinos in our country. You look at our history books and we're really not uh, highlighted as a significant part of American history. And it's almost like you have to be in college and specifically take a class to learn about our contributions. And so I feel like this is a huge part of the problem um, that, that we are not, uh, I think, as, as recognized a, a facet and component of the American fabric as we need to be. I think we've got a lot of work to do, but I do believe that that conversation is really being pushed more than ever. We are, for example, in the midst of COVID and many of us are pushing the information out about the disproportionate impact that COVID has on Latino communities. And then you've got to ask yourself why. You know, why is it that Latinos are getting sicker at three times the rate and dying at twice the rate as our, our, our white neighbors? But when you look also in terms of the election, last night's vice presidential debate, and not that immigration is, is only a Latino issue, and not that immigration is the top Latino issue, but immigration has been used as a cudgel by this administration to divide us. And he has used racism to describe immigrants and people of color. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I was disappointed that, that that didn't make it into the debate. I, the, the, the first presidential debate, really no specific discussions about Latinos in that conversation. So we've got a long way to go, but I do believe that this election, that Latinos are going to play a significant role. I do really believe that Texas, for example, is going to flip this year. And I believe the Latino vote will have a huge role in that. My team and I, other candidates, uh, my, my predecessor and good friend, Beto O'Rourke, many of us have been working on increasing voter turnout in Texas for, for many, many years now. 
And folks like me specifically have been working on voter turnout in Latino communities in El Paso and in other uh, uh, counties in the Texas Mexico border region. So we have a very powerful voice. We have an, uh, important stories to tell. We have really shaped this country, but we have to continue to push our issues, our agenda, and uplift our voices because there's just not enough recognition yet of our power. Tell me about what's different because I think it does feel from the, the sense that one gets through social media, through the general news ecosystem, it does feel, even in the polling, that it's reflecting a greater excitement for uh, democratic politicians and what some would call more progressive politics. What's actually happening on the ground and what are you and people like Beto O'Rourke doing in these communities that is actually bringing that out? What's the message that is resonating with these communities that may actually allow this to happen? I think part of that, honestly, is young people. You know, young people are demanding change right now in a way that, that I don't think my generation did. You know, the, the, there are hundreds of thousands of young people who took to the streets just in a real moment of reckoning after we witnessed the brutality of George Floyd's murder. Um, when, when we were demonstrating against kids in cages here in El Paso, as we were marching on Tornillo, as we were marching after the August 3rd, 2019 attack on El Paso, there were so many young people who were joining us. And, you know, I've been marching for 25 years and I've been, uh, an activist and civically engaged for all of my adult life. And I've never seen the number of young people that I see today. And I think that there's a sense of urgency because of the climate crisis, the climate emergency, the, the profound injustice and racism that still exists. Um, and I, I really do feel that young people are fueling a part of that. I think, honestly, the other thing that's fueling it is Donald Trump. He has basically lifted the veil or maybe I should say taken off the hood and exposed the racism that has been fueling not just his agenda, but the agenda of his enablers and his like-minded colleagues who have been more effective in the past of disguising their racism, disguising their xenophobia, using language that, that didn't expose it in the way that Donald Trump has, but that's it. He took off the hood. He lifted the veil. And he's been brazenly honest. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems. And they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. Who's number one with Hispanics? Trump. Yes, you told us Trump. that earlier. <laughs> I love the Mexican people in their spirit, but the country of Mexico is killing us. I want to build a wall. I'm going to build a wall. I want to build a wall. We need the wall. And Mexico will pay for the wall. But we have some bad hombres here and we're going to get them out. And that has, I believe, helped 
inspire Latinos who normally would have stayed home on election day. You know, I'll, just to tell you a super quick story, I've been knocking on doors in El Paso since the early 1990s. That's how long I've been politically engaged in my community. And I've knocked on hundreds of thousands of doors over that time in El Paso, some doors over and over again, whether I'm block walking for a candidate who inspires me or whether I'm knocking on doors asking for people to vote for me. I've had a lot of conversations over the years on people's doorsteps in their living rooms and their kitchens. 2018, when I was knocking on doors for my congressional race, I, I will tell you, I've never felt the kind of concern and fear that I felt from many of our voters, and many of them monolingual Spanish language voters, long time voters, some new voters, what they had in common was they pull me into their living room and say, Veronica, ¿qué vamos a hacer con este hombre? Like saying, what are we going to do about this? This is unbelievable. To that point, I credit Donald Trump for removing the hood and lifting the veil and telling America what is really going on, because I believe that has helped inspire many Latino voters as well. It really is connecting to the larger message of you choose your leadership. And if the leadership is actively against you, then this is what you can do, right? That if you vote, you could change what is happening, potentially. Right, exactly. What are you hearing about this election and how the health of Latinos might or might not change based on who's in, in leadership? You know, it's so funny the, the, because you've drawn the straight line between, which I see very clearly as well, between the election and efforts to eradicate the Affordable Care Act. Because this rush to get the Supreme Court nominee through the Senate Judiciary Committee and onto the Senate floor and to have a vote, that has taken the priority over a COVID package is something that should um, just shock and alarm every American. And I think it does based on the polling, you know, where the vast majority of Americans have responded to polls saying, we want you people in Washington to focus on our COVID relief before you worry about a Supreme Court justice and before you worry about these hearings. And the fact that the president so openly said, let's call off negotiations and only focus on the Supreme Court hearing, that also, yet again, lifting the veil. I'm glad he put it out there. He basically affirmed what we've been telling the American people. But what I'm hearing as I make phone calls and as I visit with voters is really there's not a lot of people even thinking about the Supreme Court nominee because the desperation is so intense. People who are afraid of losing their job, people are, are afraid of getting kicked out of their apartment, people who, you know, I, I had a, a, a painful conversation the other night as I was reaching out to voters with one voter who said, well, like, the... the what about the $600 with the unemployment? The unemployment check isn't cutting it. You know, because in Texas, you get a fraction of what you earned, which should, should tell you about this, you know, the 
we've had so many folks on the other side of the aisle say, we don't need that added money because basically people are, are not getting rich off of unemployment, but they're just living a little bit too high off the hog. In states like mine, they get a fraction of their salary when they're unemployed. And so that $600, you know, may help them pay the rent, may help them get their medication. And so I think that as we talk about the health of the country and about the Affordable Care Act, the immediacy of this moment is something we can't, you know, go without acknowledging. And, and, and healthcare still is the number one issue for many of the voters that I'm talking to in my district, which is 80% Latino. Um, lack of access to healthcare is part of why Latinos are so susceptible to COVID. Generations of our people have not had access to health insurance, to world-class healthcare, haven't even had access to primary healthcare. That's why many Latinos end up with comorbidities, which make us more vulnerable to getting sick, more vulnerable to dying. I'll close out this part of our conversation with this. Last week, we had a Congressional Hispanic Caucus virtual hearing. It was kind of like a congressional hearing. We had witnesses and every member of the caucus was able to ask questions of the witnesses. So we had three physicians and one essential worker and each person gave incredibly moving and compelling testimony. But there's something that Dr. Peter Hotez told us that I just, I've been repeating as often as I can. He's been looking at the demographic impact of COVID, and he's been looking at what's happening nationally. And he said to us that what is happening in the southern part of the United States, the part of the U.S. that is heavily Latino, he's seeing the statistics completely match up where we're dying at three times the rate. We're getting sicker at twice the rate. Our kids are getting hospitalized at eight times the rate. And he described it this way. He said, what is happening in the Southern part of our country is a decimation of an entire generation of Latinos. He used the word decimation. We are being decimated through COVID. And it speaks to me of the incredible lack of leadership from the White House to have a national testing strategy. I hope that voters see very clearly who the leaders are that are trying to protect them and who the leaders are that couldn't care less. When it comes to the Supreme Court nomination in healthcare, according to UCLA's poll watching expert, Rodrigo Dominguez Villegas, Latinx are definitely paying attention. He says all polling firms in the last few weeks have found health is the top issue for Latinos this fall. The effect the ACA has had on Latin families was huge. Before it was enacted in 2010, more than 40% of Latinos did not have health insurance, and it cut that rate in half. And they know one of the first cases Amy Coney Barrett will hear is that of California v. Texas, where the Trump administration and attorney generals from conservative states seek to invalidate the ACA by appealing to the judge's constitutional originalist ideologies. If the court strikes it down, as noted by researcher Kristen Link-Young at the Brookings Institute, 20 million people would lose health insurance. Plus, quote, a variety of protections for people with pre-existing conditions would be eliminated, 
and an extensive set of policies affecting Medicare, Medicaid, prescription drugs, and other parts of the healthcare system would be reversed, end quote. A lot of women are also fearful of Barrett's effect on reproductive health and violence prevention protections. The news site Vice covered the recent worries around one specific Barrett opinion, where she reversed the lawsuit a woman won against the state of Wisconsin, which employed a Milwaukee County guard who sexually assaulted her many times. Barrett and other male judges found the state wasn't liable, even though the terrifying tragedy happened on their property and through their employee. According to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the county jail, which was run by a public Trump supporter, simply fired the guy who was ultimately sentenced to three days in jail, three, and fined $200, despite legitimate accusation by the woman that he had raped her when she was seven months pregnant and then four days after giving birth. So this, is, this brings me to a question I've had for a long time, which is how do you uh, communicate to non-Latino people how important this community is? You know, the, the, thankfully in El Paso, we are such, um, you know, a community that is so deeply rooted in our binationalism and our, you know, as an international community. But I, there are still a lot of folks, even within our own community, who send me pretty ugly <laughs> mail or phone messages, who even get irritated, express irritation at the fact that I speak to the Spanish language media in Spanish. And it's really stunning to believe that we're still in this place, even in a community like El Paso that is so deeply rooted in our history and our binational, bicultural, international roots and region. I think it goes back to something that I mentioned earlier about the lack of education. We have got to bring into our history books starting with the youngest kids, we have to fight to ensure that we include our stories and our history and our role. That is how you get a population that appreciates diversity and that recognizes it. I think the more and more we elect people with brown skin and with different kinds of features and black skin and Native Americans, Asian Americans, you name it, the more that our leadership looks like the rest of America, the better. But you also, I keep coming back to this, you can't have a president who's a racist because that gives cover and fuel to every racist in America. And we should be working to defeat and eradicate racism and to celebrate diversity. And it makes it very, very difficult when you have a president and his enablers who pour fuel on the fire. What are you seeing about how Latinos are being incorporated in places like Google, Facebook, Amazon, um, from a lot of the leaders about how they can create more inclusive spaces and more opportunities? Well, what we know is that there's a lack of STEM students in general, and that is a, a workforce crisis for America because we're not going to be competitive unless we get more and more young people interested in STEM and create that pipeline for them. It's even harder for Latinos um, who in a state like Texas, 
where there's not equal access to education. If you live in a property poor school district, you will get a fraction of the resources. If you live in Fabens ISD in El Paso County, you're going to get fewer resources than someone in Plano ISD, you know, right outside of Dallas. And so we've got to acknowledge those disparities and so that we can fix it. But I will give you some uh, a ray of hope as we close out because I've got to I've got to run in just a moment. But um, UTEP, the University of Texas at El Paso, is recruiting and educating more Latinos than I believe any other university is, and they're graduating. There's one really incredible program that I want to highlight to you as an example of where the great opportunities are. And it's a a program in the engineering department on additive manufacturing and 3DI printing. And I have done my best as a member of Congress to connect the Department of Defense to this program and also work to help fund enhancements to programs with like Lockheed Martin and with the industries that help the Department of Defense. And Every time I brought a general or some military leader to tour the facility, it gives me so much pride to see so many Latinos in those labs and to see their potential, to know their potential. And they're being hired and recruited every year, year after year after year. What I'm looking to do is looking for ways to maintain that talent here in El Paso so that they can contribute to our economic development, so that they can open up their own businesses, be part of the supply chain, create wealth for themselves, not have to work for other people. But we have some of the greatest, most brilliant minds. The potential is there. We just have to create the opportunity. And we have to recognize that some folks have more opportunities than others. It's not a matter of brain power. It's a matter of opportunity. And so folks like me need to do everything we can to increase those opportunities so that our brilliant Latino STEM graduates and STEM leaders have the opportunities they deserve. Now we are going to talk to Lauren Hepler, a California-based reporter originally from Columbus, Ohio, who has covered a wide range of beats during her career, including housing and green tech, almost always looking out for deeply felt stories of real, grounded, undercovered communities. Oh, and she has a cat named Tofu, a little tabby who has stared me down like a helpless bird when I fed her a few times. So we're here with Lauren Hepler, who is the economics reporter at Cal Matters. I've known Lauren for a long time. Lauren, let's start talking at first about Proposition 22. Please explain what will happen if it passes and what will happen if it doesn't. And then after that, we can get to the potential implications nationally. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody has probably heard by now this whole buzzy phrase about the future of work that first started bubbling up with the feel-good sharing economy when everyone like fist bumped their Lyft drivers, um, but now has evolved into extremely powerful public companies that make up the gig economy. And we're now at a point where they're having to grapple with major labor issues. Um, We've already seen it sort of hit a breaking point in places like New York and Seattle that have mandated minimum wages for drivers. 
but now in California, uh, voters are going to have to decide on Prop 22, um, which really is all about a law that was passed last year in the state, AB5, you might have also heard. And just to avoid the alphabet soup, what the current law says is that gig workers, so people who work for Uber, Lyft, Instacart, DoorDash, all of those types of companies, as well as freelancers um, and independent workers in other sectors have to be classified and paid as employees. So under the current rules, they are to be paid no less than minimum wage. They are owed overtime pay of 150% uh, if they work more than 40 hours a week. And they also get things uh, like employer-sponsored health care and paid family leave, these types of benefits that you associate with like quote-unquote traditional jobs. What Prop 22 wants to do is create a whole new framework for gig workers because companies like Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and Instacart, which have collectively spent upwards of $190 million now on this campaign, making it the most expensive ballot measure, not just in California history, but in national history. What they want to do instead by investing all that money in this campaign is create a system where drivers would be paid 120% of minimum wage per hour. They would get a subsidy towards health care, but not full employer health care plans. And they would get some additional perks like accident insurance, but again, not these full government benefits like workers comp and unemployment and all these things. Um, so it's really a question of, do you think that gig workers should have the same sorts of legal protections that workers have fought for over decades in the U.S.? Or do you think that we should kind of move away from that and go into this new realm of benefits that are based on the hours you work? And the one thing I will say right away is that there's a big caveat with Prop 22, and that is that it's tied to what you call engaged time, or when there's actively a passenger or an order in the car. Um, and studies that are backed by both business and labor groups say that that means that about one third of the time that drivers usually spend waiting for a ride or waiting to pick up an order would not be paid. So a lot of people say that's kind of a big loophole to be aware of there. So the way that I understand this last part with the potential loophole that you mentioned it seems to be about flexibility, right? Uber and Lyft and all of these other companies seem like they're saying if we force people to be employed by us, then all of these workers are going to lose their flexibility. Where if, say, I'm an Uber driver and I'm and I'm doing my regular job and I have two hours to kill and I want to make a little bit of extra money on the side, I can sign up on the application and I'm on there and I'm a driver. Why would somebody want to oppose that? And what's the data behind the argument that that's not really helpful in the short term and in the long term. Yeah, I mean, you really kind of like drilled right into it. Flexibility is probably like the word you hear the most in these $190 million worth of campaign ads that are out there for the Yes on 22 campaign. Um, the labor unions who support the current state laws will say that that's kind of disingenuous because there's nothing in current laws that say you have to work a nine to five schedule. They say these companies, if they are so innovative, could kind of create new types of shift work or, you know, evolve their business model in that way. But I think here there is a genuine disagreement, um, like, about how the companies about how drastically the companies would kind of have to shift their 
models to, to make it work under California's current labor laws. Because when you talk to some drivers, they're pretty upfront about like, you know, I really genuinely hope that we get toward a model that is more like the taxi industry where you can unionize and you can bargain your commission rates. Um, and that is pretty far away from where we started with the gig economy, which was just on-demand work. You do it for a few hours a week. The problem is that um, what started as this idea of just like very casual, flexible work in some cases has evolved into drivers that are working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And they're saying, of course, we should be entitled to benefits. This is like more than a full-time job for us. And we've seen the pandemic obviously kind of like illustrate the stakes of what happens if you don't have things to fall back and, and things go south. In terms of the data, does that also include whether we know how many people are actually Uber, Lyft driver, overall gig workers in terms of the percentage of the people that are actually using these apps? And also, do we know any ethnic uh, divides within that? For example, do we know how many Latinx people are actually employees or work for these companies? Yeah, there is some some data out there on the demographics of drivers. So collectively, labor groups have said that upwards of three quarters of gig workers are people of color. Um, before COVID struck, um, I've seen the Brookings Institute said Latinos comprised about one in four gig workers. Um, obviously, we're still waiting to see kind of how those numbers evolve as the pandemic wears on and people are looking for faster sources of income. But In terms of the number of drivers, we only have kind of snippets in time. Uber last year, when California passed this ambitious new AB5 law to classify drivers as employees, said they had a little over 200,000 drivers in the state. And they said that up to 76% of those drivers would be no longer able to work on the platform if they had to be treated and paid as employees. And we've also obviously seen Uber and Lyft threaten to pull out of the state entirely because of ongoing court cases in California. So some of this is a little bit of like trying to gauge, okay, are they serious about this threat to pull out of the state? Um, or is that bluffing? And they would really be willing to come back to the table if Prop 22 does not pass. So that's why this is kind of very high stakes heading into election day. I want to know a little bit more about the minimum wage situation. Uh, can you explain further into the whole wage structure of the proposition and what it might mean for drivers? Yeah, it's a good area because it's obviously so important for if you're thinking about what what type of work you're going to do, how much are you going to get paid? And it sounds straightforward, but in this case, it's really not. So the pay studies that are out there range from a study that was released by the Berkeley Labor Center at UC Berkeley that says drivers could make as little as $5.64 an hour, so almost a third of that minimum wage you mentioned, after you factor in the cost of car ownership, after you factor in that waiting time that I mentioned that would be unpaid. But on the flip side, you have groups like researchers at UC Riverside who have been commissioned or paid by Lyft and DoorDash to study the issue. And they say, wait, 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 when you use uh, lower estimates for wait time and expenses, uh, drivers will be earning more like $25 to $27 an hour. So obviously that's a huge range. Right in the middle, you do have the nonpartisan uh, legislative analyst's office in California that says, after you factor in the waiting time and expenses, we think that, quote, most drivers will earn between $11 and $16 an hour. What, are, what else about this law connect to the, to the national story? 
I mean, in some ways, gig work is a very good proxy for some of the bigger national battles that are going on over workers' rights versus the power of corporations. You saw with COVID-19, the CEO of Uber successfully lobbied President Trump for a special unemployment program for gig workers. It's called the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance program. And that is now rolled out across the country and other freelancers are eligible as well. But that was a big example of how Uber and Lyft and other gig companies have not been paying into unemployment taxes like uh, traditional employers, but they were still able to lobby and get the government to help them out when things got dire with the pandemic. If Trump and his administration widens its power, Legislators, researchers, and reporters like Lauren all say expanding the ways employees can define workers as contractors is highly likely to happen. This would run counter to traditional labor protections and also worry some health experts. Doctors Molly Tran and Rosemary K. Sokas from the Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences Department at the State University of New York Downstate School of Public Health wrote an Occupational Health Assessment and Gig Work, which discussed, among other issues of wage and labor disparities, the unique problem people face due to increased isolation of the job. Most of the jobs, they say, are performed separated from and often in competition with fellow workers denying workers face-to-face contact with their colleagues, which forms the basis of both social support and discussion of work concerns. By the way, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have come out against a specific measure, aligning themselves, as Lauren says, with the labor groups on this issue. I remember when Uber and Lyft first started, I actually had friends thinking about uh, getting into it as drivers because it seems like everybody was making a ton of money with not a lot of work. It seemed like there was this huge uh, pot of gold at the end of the driving rainbow. And uh, it seems like that that's not the case for various reasons. Yeah, I mean, you can arguably sign up and start working much faster than most other jobs that you would just find online or office jobs. Certainly, you'd have to go through interviews, submit resumes, all that type of stuff. So there is an argument that you're, you're making money faster. Um, but the question is the costs over time. Right. And most of us look for some sense of something that's good that you can bring in every day, right? A little consistency in your workplace. Yeah, I do think it's true that like even when you look at the quote unquote like white collar jobs in the tech industry and elsewhere, a lot of those jobs are contracts now too. If you think about the content moderators at Facebook or YouTube or other companies, it's not like it's just the gig companies that have turned to this independent contractor model. Um, But since this is such a visible example of that, I think this election in many ways is going to kind of be a bellwether for is our economy going to continue to shift in that direction? Or are we really saying, okay, that was enough of the kind of tenuous contract work. We really do want to go back towards more stability, especially with the pandemic and the kind of economic picture shifting right now. So since you mentioned the economy, I think that's a good uh, place to do a little switch away from Prop 22 and more on uh, stories that we've also written about how the stimulus has affected the state and how that can also be a reflection of what's happening nationwide. Tell me about a couple of the stories that you've written about uh, how the stimulus is affected and the lack of of a recent stimulus. How is that affecting both the state and national from the perspective of the person of color? So, I mean, the big question, like you said, is whether we're going to get another stimulus deal before the election. Um, What I'm seeing out of Washington looks like, you know, it's kind of anyone's guess at this point. But what we do already know is that California on paper was one of the biggest beneficiaries of the first round of stimulus 
efforts with both the sheer number of small business loans that came into the state and how that unemployment expansion of an additional $600 per week, how that reached many more people here, just because we are the most populous state. But the question is kind of what happens now that that supplemental money has run out, the small business loans are gone. Um, It's kind of a question of how long people can last with things as they are. Um, And I've talked to some small business owners out in the Central Valley of California, for instance, that have just said, I really don't know at this point what I would even do if there is another stimulus. Like, I could get another loan, but that would, would that just be digging myself a deeper hole? It's kind of a question that people have to weigh at this point. And then the unemployment side of things we were talking a little bit earlier is uh, very chaotic still in California. I was talking to a young guy who's actually his family happens to be Peruvian, and he has been waiting for months to get current on his unemployment payments, like benefits that he's owed, that he's certified, but he's gotten caught up in some of these questions about how much fraud there is in California. So there's just a lot of complications. What are other economic issues that you've been following as a reporter for CalMatters that you think specifically Latinx people in the United States should be thinking about? I mean, housing, we know, is a huge issue in California, specifically Latino households. So one of the things that's on the ballot this November is another version of rent control. That's Proposition 21. It's very similar to a measure that has been on the ballot before, so it's unclear if it will actually pass. But I think either way, we're going to continue to hear a lot of conversation about housing and the rental market, especially we know that the eviction moratorium are set to expire early next year in most parts of the state. So where do we go from there? Are those going to get extended since people are obviously still feeling the effects of the pandemic? Or is it going to be more like advocacy groups have been warning and we could potentially see a wave of evictions and they fear also a surge in homelessness? We certainly hope it does not come to that. Um, The other big thing that's on the ballot in November is Prop 15 in California, which would be a tax hike on commercial landlords to fund schools. And I think everyone should expect to hear a lot more about schools and their funding in the next couple of years because we know that they've been asked to take on a lot during the pandemic in terms of quickly switching to virtual learning. And already in California, schools have had about $6 billion in funding deferred. So it was delayed this year due to the financial hit of the pandemic. So if that bill comes due next year, what are the schools going to do? One potential thing is this measure, Prop 15, that would increase taxes on commercial properties, again, so business properties, not people's houses, and it would raise those taxes to fund schools. But some people say that could have unintended consequences. It could ultimately end up hurting small businesses. So these are economic questions we're going to have to think about. But I think uh, there's certainly a lot to watch in terms of how, you know, pillars of our communities like schools, um, people keeping a roof over their head sort of come out of all of this. So we popped into the Tequeria Slack last week to find someone in the community to give us a few minutes of their time to see how they were feeling about the election. And we ended up talking for five minutes with Nicole Rivera, a veteran of political campaigns who has fought against regressive laws that marginalize Latinos. Are you helping out your community in terms of information and helping them vote? Yeah, sure. I mean, so I started, I founded a political action committee uh, for the 06 cycle. And this 
committee focused on youth of color and turning out youth of color in two really important swing districts, one uh, in sort of the area of Livermore here in the Bay Area, which was Republican controlled at the time. Most recently, having worked with Tom Steyer, I really believe that he was the candidate that would really make a difference in terms of the climate crisis. I think that this is the hugest threat that we are facing right now when you look at which communities are most affected by dirty air, dirty water. There are predominantly communities of color, predominantly women suffering, living in areas that don't have clean air and clean water, and so it's just a huge problem. Most recently, of course, I'm always on the phone, phone banking, talking to folks, particularly low-information voters, helping out in particular with one seat in Gresham, Oregon. I've been phone banking for Eddie Morales, who, if he wins, will be the first a uh, person of color, the first Latino, first LGBTQ um, mayor of the second largest city uh, in the state of Oregon. So now let's get into the your work for the COVID-19 project. It was started by a Tequeria member and an old colleague of mine, Alexis Madrigal. We used to work together at Wired back in the day. So tell me how you got involved with that and what you've been doing for that, please. Yeah, so the COVID tracking project is a predominantly volunteer project uh, that you mentioned was started by fellow Mexican-American Alexis Madrigal. was lucky enough to meet him through some of the uh, tech work that I had been doing in my previous professional iteration. And when I saw that's what he was working on in trying to keep a nationalized database of uh, COVID infections and that we as a country don't have a national database and did not have one at the time, really felt that some of the public affairs skill set that I bring to the table would be of use. So definitely worked on the first white paper that a group of volunteers put together, which laid out where the country needed to be in terms of data collection, and have really just been back-channeling the work that the CTP project has been doing with other elected leaders. The, ra- the reality when we're looking for this particular election, particularly for uh, the presidential race, it's really one of two models. Do you want somebody who believes in science or somebody who claims that this disease doesn't really kill anybody and is no worse than the flu? Right, and a big uh, big portion of the people that are suffering are Latinos. What else are you thinking about in regards to the election? Have you already voted? Of course. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, the day after I, I received my ballot, I, I filled it out, and I'm a permanent vote-by-mail voter because I'm usually out working on campaigns, and a lot of the times I'm not based in California working on campaigns because, of course, California is predominantly uh, blue. But when I think about things and when I think about voting, I always think about Thomas Jefferson who said, we don't have a government by the majority, we have a government by the majority who participates. And I think that you can really see that, what's happening now, I mean, it's just, it breaks my heart, quite frankly, that I'm looking at people waiting in line for an hour plus just to vote. The rea- sad reality that I see is that really speaks to the lack of GOP values in every American's uh, right to vote. We've seen 40 years of just intrinsic voter instability in terms of removing polling stations in predominantly communities of color and ensuring that even though felons have already paid their time to society, uh, you know, are no longer allowed to vote uh, by not having a model where everybody gets the day, election day off to vote or in not following the model of Oregon where every ballot is mailed. 
Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else about your mindset as we come closer to the election? Um, you know, for the last 40 years, we've had massive deregulation and trusting the market to allocate resources with really no rule enforcement uh, due to the defunding of government in general, looking at predatory business models and business, large corporations cutting corners and putting more effort into making more money than they do in making sure that their employees are safe. So I think there's a real uh, reckoning coming. I know that we're facing an economic collapse. Uh, a reckoning of our races past and present, and we really need to look at repairing democracy first and voting for people who uh, believe in facts. Next man up. In the following clip, we talk to Paul McLachlan, a Mexican-American San Francisco-based engineer who is pushing himself to the max to make a difference in the election. He's been volunteering with a group that reaches out to people across the U.S. who need help knowing how to vote in the middle of the pandemic. Tell me about the work that you've been doing with the phone bank, because I think, and this is so interesting that we're having this conversation. I really wish that we would have had it a month ago when we had more time to make sure people know about it, because there's so many potential phone banks, right? Like, how do people even choose what to use? Like, for example, my mom speaks both Spanish and English and would have been a great uh, resource to speak to Spanish-speaking people. I mean, we should have invited her. I think a lot of this for me comes, there's a, a really fantastic uh, political scientist named Etan Hirsch, and he wrote a book around the really raising the idea that politics is for power. And what has happened a lot now is everyone is paying so much attention to politics, but it's almost like uh, sports, you know, you, you see who's ahead and who's behind and, and who said what and who did what. And we post a lot of that on social media, but we kind of forget that by sending a really smart tweet or by saying something, you know, funny or, or, or editing a video, we're really not reaching out to voters, right? So most people are not on social media. They are not engaging. They don't follow us when we're on social media. So we actually have to go and do a lot of the hard work of talking to voters, getting them involved, because the, the research really suggests that the key reason people don't vote is because they don't actually know how to. So the, you know, the research around young voters, minority voters, is that they vote at lower rates than, uh, than white voters do, than, than senior citizens do. And a lot of that is not lack of interest. It's not lack of ability. It's just not knowing how to enter the process. So how do you register to vote? How do you get your mail-in ballot? What do you do if your ballot hasn't arrived? What do you do if your signature doesn't match? What do you do if your polling place is closed? These are all questions that you know you learn over time. And I, I really think about using my time to reach out to voters, to inform them, to engage them rather than uh, talking to people who are already on my side. You know what that this brings up to me for me is the sense of connection that sometimes social media gives this false sense of connectedness, provides a false sense of understanding in a community. Because when you tell me that the biggest thing that that's keeping people away from the polls is the lack of information, one of my first instincts is to say, how could that be possible when we think about engaging voters, when we think about reaching out to them, we have to think that a lot of the people who are in a position who are, are savvy enough to you know, get passionate, to, to join 
the fights. People who sign up at uh, mobilize.us slash 2020 victory or join uh, state organizations like the Texas Democrats who have a fantastic texting program uh, or the Arizona Democrats who have a really fantastic texting program or North Carolina or Georgia. The people who have the wherewithal and the savviness to get involved in politics in that way are pretty distinct and different from the you know, the, the modal American voter. And so what we are trying to do, uh, you know, we've been sending out, or I've personally sent out, I think yesterday was 60,000 text messages, the day before 100,000 text messages. But what we're really trying to do is simplify that process and give people the information they need. So I think a lot of the, the another barrier I hear a lot to volunteering is people feel like uh, what we're doing when we reach out to voters is trying to persuade them and that they will be in these really heated arguments all of the time. That's not really what we are trying to do. What we're primarily trying to do is understand who the voter supports and make sure we get information to them uh, so that they can be, be politically active and that they know how to cast their ballot. That's primarily what we're doing in this, in this election. So you're a volunteer and you're sending an, an insane amount of text messages. How is that uh, physically possible? And how can one or two or three extra volunteers actually make a difference in the last days of the election? Every volunteer is super critical because what we do is when you sign up, the best place if you want to get involved uh, with the Democratic Party, if you want to help elect uh, Democratic Senate candidates, if you want to help elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, you should go to mobilize.us slash 2020 victory. So no one should feel like they are, if they sign up that they're just going to be thrown uh, into the deep end with a list of voters and no idea what to do. So there's training. So the first thing is please sign up and please go get trained. And then you will be texting from your computer. You can hit send. And then there's a variety of options based on what the voter said, what the voter responds to you. So the primary thing is we want to make sure that we're providing information so people feel empowered to be uh, civically engaged so that they have the knowledge about where to go to vote, what forms of voter ID they need to bring with them if they're voting in person. For example, in states like uh, South Carolina, that they need to have a witness sign their ballot if they're voting uh, mail-in so that they can cure their ballot. So in states like Georgia uh, that make information around mail-in ballots that have been rejected available, we can reach out to voters and say, hey, did you know that your ballot was not signed and therefore will not count? Can you go fix that? Uh, you know, That's what we're trying to do is really provide information and help people essentially course correct before it's too late because it's 7 p.m. Eastern or 8 p.m. Eastern on, on the 3rd of November, it's too late. I think most people don't know how to get engaged and volunteer. So I feel like uh, this is actually a much better use of, of time and energy, and, and it's kind of addictive, actually. So you're using software for the outreach. So there, there are organizers who cut the lists, who decide who we're going to reach out to. Just as a volunteer, what you really do is you have to hit return. By law, uh, it's illegal to send a robotext. So every time you get a political text message, there should be, by law, a human who hit return and sent it. Uh, no, no robo-texting at all. And then we respond to what voters say. So if a voter asks us to stop contacting them, we opt them out. We never contact them again. Although the challenge with that is there's a lot of groups reaching out to voters. So if you tell one group to opt you out, there could be another group uh, right behind them. It's not a universal opt-out. 
And then, for example, if a voter says, uh, my ballot hasn't come in the mail, I tell them uh, where they can reach out to to get to, to talk to their registrar of voters. If they say, I've already voted, I thank them for being engaged and ask them to talk to their community around if to make sure they voted as well. Uh, if they say that, um, I don't know where to go to vote, I provide information on where they can go cast their early vote or where they can go on election day. It's really uh, pretty simple when you do have those moments of connection where a voter says, you know, my ballot hasn't come, what should I do? And you provide them the information and they write back an hour later saying, I got a hold of someone, my ballot is in the mail, I'll be voting tomorrow. That's a really addictive feeling. And that's better than than getting retweeted. Can you tell me, are there a couple of examples, a couple of anecdotes from the time that you've been doing this that have been impactful for you that really makes this work that you're putting in feel really worth it? I can. So I was actually texting. Uh, so I, I don't I don't know any information other than the first name of the person uh, I'm reaching out to in the state they're located in. It's to keep people private and secure. So I was reaching out to a list of voters in Georgia. And a woman said that she and her husband were in hospital with COVID-19. Uh, they were uh, in, in an ICU and they needed help uh, getting a mail-in ballot sent to the hospital because they were not able to go home to, to collect their ballots that, that were there. So I sent them uh, information around how to contact the, uh, Fulton County, which is Atlanta, in this case, and ask for new ballots to be mailed out. And they said that that they, with the, the nursing staff, were able to call Fulton County and, and got a ballots delivered to the hospital and they wrote back saying that they had uh, voted. And, and so it's things like this where, you know, for me, I know how to personally Google, for, uh, you know, I live in San Francisco, so I know personally how to Google and find, uh, you know, how to contact my registrar of voters. But so many people are, are having, are in situations particularly at this moment in history, where voting and contacting the registrar of voters is the 40th thing on their mind between how do I uh, deal with kids who are not in school or e-learning? How do I pay the rent this month because I have been laid off? How do I keep my family safe from COVID-19 because no one is wearing a mask around me? So at the bottom of that list is how do I reach out to my county registrar of voters and uh, and get a ballot sent to me. So if you can make that process easier, I feel like I'm having an impact. What you're expecting to see and hear about in the next nine days until the election. I think it's really important that everyone has a plan to vote. So first you have to start with yourself. So if you are voting in person, if you can early vote, please do that. Uh, please get that done. The second is we have to get engaged and we have to reach out to our communities. You can have an impact as a volunteer. It's calling your friends and family and making sure they have voted. If you want to get engaged, if you want to volunteer, if you want to join uh, our movement, if you're fired up, please go to mobilize.us. That's M-O-B-I-L-I-Z-E.us slash 2020 victory. There will be events there all day, every day, either at the national level, at the state or local level, for you to get engaged in. There will be training. Pick a state, adopt it. If you live in a, a state that's not a swing state like the Bay Area, adopt Texas, adopt Florida, adopt Georgia, adopt North Carolina, and, and get engaged there. But 
I think the key piece I want to maybe finish with is if you feel as impassioned about this election as I do, if you think the stakes are really high, and I definitely do, the best and most influence you can have is with your family, your friends, and by volunteering, posting, you know, dunking on on Trump on on Facebook or is not going to win the election for us. Reaching out to voters and helping them mobilize, that's what is going to, to, to turn things around in this country. We've mentioned Professor Rodrigo Dominguez Villegas a couple of times, and now we get to hear from him directly. As the Director of Research at the Latino Policy and Politics Initiative at UCLA, he directs the research agenda focusing on economic opportunity, health democracy, and voting rights. He's also an expert in deportation cases and leads the LPPI's Mentor Fellowship Program. In this brief conversation, we talked about the think tank's latest report focused on the most important areas going into the election. You mentioned in the report that Latinos are a huge part of the essential worker segment of the population, that they're not competitively a problem for other Americans. For example, the idea that they're not taking up jobs that other Americans would want. So how does this translate to votes? You just mentioned how the racism might translate to the enthusiasm of the Latino Latinx community. Um, And I'm talking about not just for votes for the Latino community, but are white voters more willing to understand the role that Latino and Latina and Latinx people are having this year especially? Has that gotten through, essentially? Do people understand or do, you know, are they still kind of stuck in that mindset? Yes. First of all, it's important to emphasize that even in 2016, when the campaign was all about demonizing the Latino community, most polls were showing overwhelming support for immigrants and overwhelming support for immigration reform and overwhelming support for a path to citizenship. And that has only grown since 2016. So President Trump's attacks on Latinos has not worked, and it has only done the opposite. And we've seen over and over in states, in state politics, that when you attack the Latino community, the Latino community is going to organize, and they're going to change the way that politics works. So we saw that in California uh, in the 90s, when Prop 187 passed, or where, you know, was uh, being discussed to exclude immigrants from a series of benefits and Latinos in California naturalized, registered, mobilized, and look at what California is like now. There is no way that a Republican can win a statewide election right now in California because of the organization of the Latino community. And because, as you said, there was solidarity from other groups too. So as Latinos organized in California, uh, other population groups also mobilized towards understanding the benefits of immigration. Look at Arizona, right? 2010. SB 1070, which was gonna, which allowed police to stop anybody who they believed was not in the country legally and was basically a green light to racial profiling Latinos. That passed in 2010 and that energized the Latino community like never before. Latinos registered to, well, first of all, many Latinos naturalized that hadn't naturalized before. Latinos organized, they registered to vote, and in 2018, the first Democratic candidate for the Senate 
in many years, in several decades, won in Arizona. And we're, what we're seeing right now is that in the polls, it, show, it, it looks like Joe Biden has an edge over uh, Donald Trump. So the message really is, if you mess up with the Latino community, Latinos are going to organize. And I think that's what's happened since 2016. The polls are really showing that the overwhelming majority of Americans believe that, for instance, the Dreamers should stay and that DACA should continue and that actually there should be a legislation passed in Congress to allow the Dreamers to stay in the country and to have access to education and other types of opportunities. The overwhelming majority of Americans believe that the 11 million undocumented immigrants who are currently in the country and who contribute to the, the economic foundations of this country should be able to stay in the country and get, get a path of citizenship. And what you mentioned is that something that it appears to be happening too. So what the pandemic showed was something that was happening in the Latino community for a very long time. So what it has highlighted the importance of the Latino workers for everyone's lives, right? So Latinos right now are the ones who have been maintaining or allowing to allowing middle-class Americans who are overwhelmingly non-Latino to remain sheltered in place. And so Latinos are the ones who are working in the fields, producing the food, who are delivering the food, who are in stores at the cashiers. In all those kinds of jobs that, we, that we've needed, in manufacturing jobs, also producing equipment in the healthcare industry as nurses and doctors, and they're really the frontline workers. So they've been able in the past seven, uh, six, seven, eight months where we've needed and we've relied on Latino workers. I think the rest of the country has, as you mentioned, really understood that even more so than before that immigrant workers and Latino workers are fundamental for the economy and the Latinos are contributing to, to this country enormously. What are some of the things that could really affect Latinx people, Latino people, with a Biden-Harris presidency, and then after that, let's talk about what could happen to Latino people in this country with the continuation of the Trump administration. This is a very difficult question because elections are very consequential. And despite the Latino community being somewhat ignored by both campaigns, there is a huge difference between the approach of one candidate and the approach of the other one. The most important difference, I think, is the difference in the narrative and the language that is used to talk about Latinos in this country. On one hand, you have a president who started his uh, first campaign talking about Mexicans as rapists and criminals and that type of narrative has continued throughout the three and a half years of his presidency. And we've seen what happens when the head of the country or, right, or like the most powerful figure in the country uses that kind of language to refer to the second largest demographic group in the country. And so, you know, last year we had a horrible shooting in El Paso, and that was not a coincidence. When the president is talking about immigrants as invaders and enemies and and many other types of things, right-wing extremists hear that and think that they're given a green light to attack the invader. Hate crimes against 
Latinos have spiked since President Trump became president or since, even since President Trump launched his campaign in 2015. On the other hand, you have the Biden-Harris ticket that definitely does not talk about Latinos with those terms. And so that is, that's just a huge difference between the two of them. And the daily lives of Latinos ha has changed significantly just because of the narrative that comes from the president. The discourse of hate towards a demographic group that not only is the second largest, but it is uh, predominantly now concentrated in essential work that is really launching this country uh, forward and that has contributed so much to the country is just unconscionable. And, and in terms of policy, I think there's also clear differences. And as I said, despite the, the fact that the Biden-Harris uh, ticket has not come out uh, with as much detail in policies to specifically targeting the Latino community, they did come out with, with somewhat of a Latino agenda where they specified some of the policies that they'll implement towards Latinos. But I think there are other types of policies that will benefit Latinos incredibly. First one, right, increase the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. More than 50% of Latino workers in the country earn less than $15 an hour. Bring that minimum wage up to $15 an hour, which is what's considered to be a living wage all across the country, will be, you know, a huge help for Latino workers. Restoring overtime pay to millions of workers is one of the main campaign promises from the Biden administration that would also disproportionately help Latino workers. In terms of education, right, investing in education from birth through 12th grade. So they're going to build partnerships with high schools, community college employers, and they really want all kids to have a, a chance to graduate with an with either an industry credential or with a, a path towards community colleges or higher ed, four-year colleges uh, and beyond. The Biden higher ticket is promising doubling the, the maximum value of Pell Grants, which are grants that are used for to support college students from low-income families. They're promising an unprecedented $70 billion investment in Hispanic and other minority-serving institutions, as well as historically black colleges and universities. And investing in students' higher education goes beyond loans. There is a huge need in supporting college and graduate students with career training and networking, and through mentoring programs that support them on a cultural level. Latino education leaders have seen how important this is for their students by seeing up close how comfortable they feel in an environment designed with them in mind. Things as simple as meeting weekly to discuss issues can lead to more complex conversations and more minds open to interdisciplinary work, like, say, social researchers learning about and using coding skills in their work. It's really not so different from Deion Sanders' classic phrase connecting performance to comfort. If you feel good, you play good. What else? For instance, they would extend TPS, which is Temporary Protection Status, which over 400,000 immigrants currently are on, which allows, which gives them some layer of protection uh, against deportation, and which the Trump administration has been trying to get rid of. Uh, Biden, the Biden-Harris ticket has um, promised to extend the 
determination of Honduras and El Salvador as countries with TPS protection, and also to provide Venezuelans, Venezuelan immigrants with temporary protected status, because uh, Venezuelans currently, given the situation in the country, it would be really hard for them to return to Venezuela. What else are people thinking about when it comes to the election? Yes. So here's a key number. 40% of all Latino registered voters are under the age of 33. So a huge percent of Latino voters are young people. And unfortunately, historically, we've seen that it is the youngest uh, voters that tend to vote less. So I think it's key to energize and to remind young people that this is an incredibly consequential election. The opinion polls also show that young Latinos are the most progressive voting bloc. Young Latinos care a lot about climate change and the choice that they have in the in this election is in terms of climate change is really clear. They have a climate change denier who does not believe in science on one hand and and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris who believe in scientists who have a clear plan to for against climate change. So that's one issue. There's many other issues where uh, young Latino voters are really strongly in support of certain policies and that they can really make a change. I think I really want to talk to young Latino voters if if they're hearing the podcast and to remind them that their vote is going to be consequential for generations to come for many different reasons. And staying home, even if you have not registered, if you have not registered, there is still a chance for your voice to be heard. And you can still, in many states, go on election day, go to the voting polling station and register in person. And really, like, the Latino youth is just so important for this election that if they stay home, they could really regret it for a very long time. Finally, we have Unlearn the World, a.k.a. Marlon Richardson, an Oakland-based rapper who is also a leader in the nonprofit Hip Hop for Change, which helps educate local kids and adults in learning about the importance and history of the form and how it can be used for positive, realistic community development. How are you feeling about the election coming up, especially when you think about and engage with the various groups you are a part of, as an Afro-Latino, as a black man, a hip-hop artist. Maybe talk how you feel about each of those connecting it to the election. Yeah, um, you know, it, I, I think as a person of color in the United States, it, we, we have this kind of love-hate relationship with the electoral process and democracy as a whole. Uh, and it really comes down to just this country historically having marginalized and oppressed people of color um, and and almost kind of uh, being an afterthought in terms of the democratic process and in terms of what this country promises, not only to our own citizens, but across the world, um, how we have historically tried to fit in to this promise, how we have historically tried to gain equity in this promise, but have been systematically and um, culturally just kind of left out or forgotten in many cases. So I think just 
I, I echo the sentiments of many people in my community where we're, we're just kind of of two minds. It's like, do we really want to involve ourselves in this process or do we just want to completely abstain and, and, and withdraw from, from democracy as a whole? And I think it's a double-edged sword with no handle, but if I had to make a decision, I would err on the side of actually involving and engaging in the process uh, simply for the sake of, of our communities, you know, if not on a federal level, then definitely at a local level. And I think that it's, it's often missed on us that there are a lot of changes that we can affect on a local level before we even start considering what's happening in the, in the White House or in Congress or any of those, uh, the more federal um, electoral opportunities there, you know? So it's just a matter of like really trying to understand how the democratic process is ran, educating others in that process and really speaking to local politics uh, as it relates to what, what we're interested in. Me as an educator, as an artist, as an activist, there are certain, you know, propositions and, and policies and, and things that I, I would love to, to you know, uh, either stand for or stand against. And, you know, naturally on a federal level, you know, it, it's kind of like the, uh, the, the lesser of the two evils kind of theory that we're, we're often talking about. But considering everything that we've experienced over the last year, xenophobia running rampant, fascism on the rise as, as well as far as I see it. Um, and it, it's, it's just kind of a mixed bag, you know? So as much as I'm uh, actively engaged in the democratic process and I will be voting and I am voting, um, in terms of its outcomes, in terms of its efficacy, it's it's really hard to tell at this juncture in time. I think a lot of us are kind of just waiting with bated breath to see what's going to happen after Tuesday. You're a part of a great tradition of Oakland artists with uh, who rap deep about politics and its effects on people, especially the underrepresented, the oppressed, the overpoliced. How are you bringing the rest of the world, of that world, into your music? And has that changed for you over time? Um, it has. It, it, it's definitely evolved. I, I, I started, or I would like to think that I started as a, 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 what we would consider a socially conscious rap artist. Um, most of my earlier work was very much engaged in social commentary and political reflection and political activism and, you know, in the vein of a dead prez or an immortal technique, uh, those kind of artists. I, because of my own experiences in my own life and just as I've got older, my, my thought process, my approach musically has evolved. Uh, so what I, what I try to do more is just pre present and provide a personal narrative of my life um, as, as the end result of the policies that I am fighting for or against, right? Showing how that reflects in my everyday upbringing or my everyday uh, just navigation through society. You know, uh, things as simple as um, just articulating my trepidation or anxiety or fear about police in my rearview mirror, right? Something as simple as that can speak volumes because people truly experience those kind of things on an everyday basis. Um, you know, watching television and, and, and the, the level of just complete confusion and frustration that you see with regard to how poli how politicians are, are uh, you know, all jockeying for position to control the people um, in the midst of, of police violence and, and, and civil unrest and all of these things. These are things that I reflect on from a personal position. So it's no more, it's not as, uh, for lack of a better term, preachy 
as it once was, where I'm, I'm not in my record saying you need to do X, Y, or Z. I'm kind of asking rhetorical questions often. I'm kind of reflecting on the current state of where we are, the things that we have allowed ourselves to participate in, the things that we've allowed to agree to or, or accept and, and, given a name or given a moniker like unlearn the world, my, my natural approach is to question all of it and to second guess all of it uh, for the hope of creating something that's better and more sustaining, not only for myself, but for the people that I, I feel I represent. You mentioned Hip Hop for Change, uh, the organization that you're a part of. You work there. Uh, let's, let's talk about that. I'm really interested in this. Yeah. The organization recently won a 2020 William Zellerback award for social justice, as well as the San Francisco symphony's 2020 Ellen Magnum Newman award for outstanding arts org. Please tell me, uh, what it is that you do there. What, what does hip hop for change do for the community? Yeah, certainly. And, and, and thank you for mentioning those awards. We're extremely grateful for uh, the opportunity to be seen um, and, and recognized by such cool and, and, and amazing institutions. So thank you for mentioning that. Um, just as an organization as a whole, we have dedicated ourselves over the last seven years to providing a platform um, of bringing the true history and culture of hip hop to the world. Uh, that's initially our premise and that's what we've started. Um, but also in, in doing so, providing a platform for artists, local artists especially, uh, whose messages are either too positive or political for mainstream outlets. You know, hip hop over the last 47 years as a culture has grown and has thrived and is also now a multi-billion dollar business that employs hundreds of thousands of people. and. In, in, in that understanding in a capitalist society, you're, you're going to have that, that commodification of a culture. You're going to have that commercialization. The danger in that commercialization is that it, it, is, it is celebrating and, and kind of uh, focusing on and narrowing the narratives that are in our communities and only focusing on and celebrating narratives that, that, pr that promote self-destructive behavior, that um, paint young black and brown young uh, youth as, as hyper-violent, hyper-misogynistic, glorifying materialism and drugs. And that has dire consequences when the consumer base of the music that is, is, is promoted is young white males from 18 to 25, most of which do not have a personal friend of color. So when these consumers of these stereotypical tropes then become CEOs or business owners of their own who have to make hiring decisions, or they become judges, or they become police officers who have to patrol the streets of Oakland or Harlem or Compton or you know any other urban city in the United States, they're basing their uh, interaction with the youth in those communities based on the tropes they've seen. Uh, and that can have dire consequences. This is where we get situations like a young man like Tamir Rice being shot because a cop actually thinks he has a gun, even though he's a child. This becomes those situations where kids in schools who are of color are disciplined a great deal more for offenses, um, more so than their white counterparts. Um, so it does have an effect on, on, on the body politic. It does have an effect on our day-to-day, -day, whether it's our education system or our, our juvenile detention system or our general adult law enforcement system. 
system. These archetypes that are being promoted and used by the major corporations do have a deadly effect on our on our communities. So what we're doing as an organization is really just trying to create a, a community-based counter-narrative so that we are introducing and reintroducing the culture and, 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 and history of hip-hop in its true form, the true values of peace, love, unity, and having fun, the social justice mechanism that hip-hop has found itself to be, um, that is often a concept that is lost on our youth. We're reintroducing this concept to them and providing them local examples of what it is to live a hip-hop lifestyle, what it is to be involved in the culture, to live and thrive as your most authentic self without having the code switch, without having to deal in criminal archetypes or stereotypes. Um, and and, and that's, that's, a, that's amazing work that we want to continue to do. On the national scale, you know, in the, in the wake, of, in the midst of COVID, uh, we kind of converted our entire uh, curriculum that we were providing to schools, kindergarten through 12th grade, and even in the university level, we converted it to an online platform. This gives us the national reach that we had been looking for um, for years, where now we're able to organize and, and, and put together virtual assemblies in places like Chicago and Houston, Texas, and all of these other places that we never had access to prior to, to COVID. So virtual learning has actually made the world smaller for us. Uh, right before COVID, we did our first international um, program down in El Salvador where we were teaching not only young students but older teachers uh, how to implement hip-hop in their schools and in their classrooms uh, in Spanish and that was an amazing um, experience in and of itself to, to have that legacy of hip-hop that I grew up with in New York City now extended all the way down to South America or Central America in this case uh, so you know this year, 2020, as tumultuous as it has been for our organization and for other organizations that are in similar positions, we've still been able to thrive and we've still been able to circumvent some of the disasters that, that affect us, you know, and, um, you know, basically kind of just find a cheat code in order to make something out of nothing, which is what hip hop is all about. Bringing it back around to uh, in terms of education, in terms of your work. And you recently released a new album, right? Like a couple months ago. So, you know, we are a few days away from the election. Somebody says, hey, Unlearn, give me one or two of your songs. I want to be listening for the next two days so I can get amped up about what's, what may or may not happen on Tuesday. Something that's kind of political, but it's something that's awesome. What are you telling them? So the album is called Light Years, just so everybody knows. It's an album I dropped in the summer, um, 16 songs, all self-produced. Uh, and, it, you know, it, it's what I would call my magnum opus. It's my favorite album that I've created thus far. Um, and I'm really excited to share it uh, in, in multiple uh, arenas and platforms. So definitely check that out. The song I would give them just to kind of speak to what's going on now and to get them pumped for the election would have to be your, your favorite rap is a liar. Um, that's a, that's a song that it's the third track on my album, if I'm not mistaken, that really just speaks to uh, media lies, media manipulation, uh, does speak on, on um, you know, politics in, in one way or another. But the broader theme of the song is, is that we believe in these uh, celebrities and we believe in these public figures in terms of what they're telling us. But we ultimately have to 
kind of dismiss a lot of the things that they're putting out there that are mainly just to hypnotize us and lull us back to sleep in one way or another. So it's incumbent on all of us to really do the research and, 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 and understand the nature of the reality in which we live and not just succumb to the whims and the, the suggestions of propped up celebrities, whether they're rappers, politicians, um, TV show host or other public uh, figures, you know, it's, it's really about understanding who we need to be and who we want to be for ourselves, our families and our communities at large. That's the end of the show. Hope that went fast for people and that a lot of learning happened there. I'd like to thank all of our guests on today's show. Since we talked to a lot of people, we had to cut up parts of some of our conversations. But you will be able to hear most of them in full, hopefully, on Tequeria.org's YouTube channel. So look out for that. Today's episode was produced by Neil Godbole at Airship Laboratories in Richmond, California and reported and researched by myself, Jose Formoso. If you want to get in touch, hit us up on the Tequeria podcast and Points of Presence media pages on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or you can email or message me directly through those platforms as well. Important note, we are looking for funding for this podcast. So if you know people in your company with financial responsibilities or are that person, please do get in touch. We'd love to work with you on supporting this program directly. Thank you for your time. See you next time at the Tequeria. And do not forget to vote.